You'll never believe this. A pastor and a rabbi walk into a podcast to discuss how faith and tradition should inspire but not limit us. Yeah, we talk about stand-up comedy, surfing, religion, family issues, Doritos, hemorrhoids, the bears, and absolutely nothing at all. You'll have so much fun, you'll never believe we're actually religious leaders. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Jamie, how are you? Oh, man, I, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm on my porch, as I always am, you know, my little soundproof porch. It's not soundproof. But uh, yeah, it's good yeah, to see you, man. Wonderful. How about you? I'm good. First day of vacation. Happy to be taking a little break. Uh, nothing exciting going on other than that. I heard, um, I heard you gotten a little surf wipeout last week. <laughs> this is true. I, uh, I actually went surfing at this uh, new spot that I really have been enjoying. It's one of the only, so there's maybe like one or two, but there's only a couple of reef spots in, in, in Israel. So that means that there's a rock bottom in it and it sort of breaks. When the wave breaks, it breaks in a consistent sort of same way every time. And I took off on a wave. When I took off, there was a, I think the kid must've been 10 years old. So I'm taking off. <laughs> and he was and definitely it, better than you. Uh, not, not after this day, <laughs> I'm taking off. I, I start to turn and I can't, there's rocks right sort of ahead of me and to the right. That's how you take off. You paddle straight towards the rocks or to the left as you go. And you go right past the rocks as you take off. So I couldn't straighten out and he didn't know how to go under the wave and whatever. And I, I went like right over him and I oh. jumped off. And when I jumped off, I got really lucky because I only know in retrospect, I mean, I could have landed on a rock. I was really lucky. Didn't land on a rock. But when I came up, he had like, my board had bumped his arm and then he shows me his board and my fin sliced into the side of his board, like, you know, like a good two to three inches deep, which is like, you need a real serious fix to fix that. And I got, I, we, as we were basically trying to get out of the water or get out, basically figure out what was going on. I wasn't the only one who got an injury. I get hit by a wave and my arm slams into a rock. And it's probably the worst injury I've ever gotten in the water. And my board swung and nailed a friend of mine. And he, he, got, he, showed, he sent me a picture of it yesterday and he has a bruise about the size of like a softball on his side. Oh. And I'm like, oh. And so we were all caught inside. And finally I bring him in. I get the kid inside and I, and I take him to his house, which was right by the, you know, where I was surfing. And I said, here's my phone number. Call me. I'll, I'm happy to pay for the fixed job on your board or whatever. And he was writing with the same hand. So I know that he wasn't too hurt. Thank God for that. And I look at my pinky and there's blood around my pinky. And I was like, where'd that blood come from? And I turn my arm and the outside of my forearm is just, I have a gash, like two good sized gashes, but one real deep. And I'm like, I had no idea that I was bleeding. <laughs> like my yeah, whole yeah. forearm was covered. And um, Thank God. Like I said, thank God everybody was okay and everybody had their bang ups, but, uh, and it could have been a lot worse, but I definitely think as far as actual surfing injuries I've ever had in my life, that was up there on the list of like top two. That's have the you worst. Ever, yeah. I the, think I, is that the scaredest you've been after falling off though? No, I definitely wasn't. I wasn't scared when we, when the waves were coming or anything, I wasn't, I didn't even like, it didn't even dawn on me that the rocks were there. Yeah, I kind of hit them. And then I was like, all right. I mean, like I knew the waves were maybe 
two to four foot. You know what I mean? It wasn't. Huge. So when have you been, when have you wiped out? That's been like terrifying. I mean, there was the, the only injury I've ever had that was from a wipeout that was really intense was I was, it was like early on in my surf career. My father drove me to North to, to New Jersey from Philadelphia. It was like my only day to go before like the entire winter. Cause I lived in Philadelphia, grew up in Philadelphia and the waves because of the beach erosion, the waves were just basically dumping on the beach. And so it was like dry sand and the, and the wave would just close right on the beach. And I was still trying to surf cause I was so, you know, yeah, dying to yeah. surf. And I, and I stood up on a wave and I did what's called purling. So the nose goes under, uh-huh. I fell forward onto nothing but shells uh-huh. and I, and I like dry shells and I, and I put my hands out and I stood up and I looked at my right hand and I was like, Oh, I'm fine. I look at my left hand and I have a gash on my wrist that must be, you know, two solid inches across. You know what I mean? Like just up from the artery. I mean, like it was really bad needed like, I think five or six stitches. Um, yeah. So that was definitely the worst injury, um, that I've ever had surfing. And I, and I barely call that surfing. <laughs> That's barely a surf deck. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They you, get, uh, have, go ahead. Yeah. Well, those white, I mean, those injuries get pretty gnarly. I, you know, I, um, we, my worst injury was, I was, uh, it was a small day in Narragansett and I paddled out with, Adam's 12 foot red beast. Oh and, um, that thing's trying, got a mind of its own, bro. Trying to figure out, trying to figure out like where to, where to put my weight on it. And I think on the second or third wave, I popped up too close to the nose and the wave closed out and I just fell forward. And that beast kicked back up into the wave. The wave then pushed it as I'm getting, as I'm trying to stand up on the beach, the wave pushed the board right into my uh, cheekbone, like right below my eye. Oh. And uh, so I mean, just, that board, that board probably weighed what 50 pounds. Oh yeah. It was huge. I mean, yeah, you just looked, looked silly trying to carry it. So I, it whacked me hard. I fell over. I remember being more worried about getting Adam's board back to him. So I was like running after the board. And as I'm running after the board, I can see the four people, Adam and I took some people to the beach that, that hadn't gone to the beach much. And uh, we were trying to impress these girls. So I could see the four of them stand up from the beach and start <laughs> walking towards me. And I was like, what's going on? So I grab Adam's board and I turn and Adam's like, dude, you are not all right. And what I didn't realize was the, the, the swelling had art. It was already swe- I could feel it a little, but it was so cold. I didn't have any pain, but my cheek had swollen over my eye. And so by the time we got in the car, my cheek, you couldn't even see my eyebrow because my cheek had swollen in this like massively odd way. And the whole oh, time, man. I think my friend Pete was driving and he was like, and he, and he turned the, the rear view mirror. He was driving me to the hospital. He turned the rear view mirror. And he was like, dude, I can't look at you and drive at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that is such. So I was sitting in the backseat. Um, and I remember I just had this towel putting massive pressure on my eye. And luckily everything was okay. I didn't even break anything, but that was brutal. And that was, I mean, that wasn't the scaredest I've ever been though. I think, um, like that was the worst injury I've got. But I think like right. there's, there's plenty of wipeouts. You don't get injured. But I remember the first time I paddled out in San Francisco at Sloat, um, I hadn't been in a wave that powerful before. It was right after I moved to the West Coast. And um, the undertow was pretty serious. So I was paddling out and uh, wave was, you know, biting hard. 
and I was going straight at the wave. And for some reason I turned a little bit to go at an angle through the wave and didn't realize the undertow sucked me up sideways and the wave broke immediately and just slammed down. So it just sucked me up and sort of threw me in the spin cycle and held me under for two other waves that I was just like under the water trying to make sense. And I think I tried to get out, but I, uh, I pushed, uh, or I tried to swim and I wound up swimming down and hitting the ground instead of the, Oh my God. That means you were really disoriented. Oh, it was, I, and I just, I there, you know, there are spinning. stories, there are stories of guys who go out in the, in the, in the really big stuff. I mean, you and I talking about it, like what they call a day that they probably won't even go out. The yeah. guys who go out at like 30 foot, 60 foot, right. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're so, they're being pushed so far down and have turned over so many times that they use their leash as a way to sort of climb back right, up to the pull it up. Yep. because they don't know which way's up and down because it's black, it's dark, it's, you know, you're totally disoriented. I don't think I've ever been that disoriented under the water yeah. that I swam the wrong way. I, I do remember that now that you brought it up, there was a time when we went, did you ever go with us to North Carolina with this URI surf club? How do you not remember? I remember cramming in the backseat <laughs> of your Kia for 13 hours overnight. No, no, no. I never had a Kia. That must have been Lauren Fontaine or something. That was definitely not my car. That was me, you, Adam, Lou. Yeah, the four of us crammed in your car. And we had like three surfboards that were bigger than the car on the roof. And Adam and I were crammed in the back. So, right. So, one of the times we went to North Carolina. Now, they say the people that surf in North Carolina on on Hatteras, that that the waves are so powerful, so hollow, and so fast that they're able to go from there to one of the most dangerous waves in the world, the Bonsai pipeline without a problem. They say that like, that's how intense that those waves are there. And when it, most of the time while I was surfing there, I think it was the first year we went, the waves were, they were at low tide. There would be a, a wave that would break way outside and it would be really flat and easy. And, you know, and so for longboarding, it was perfect because I was longboarding at the time. I wasn't riding any shortboards at the time, which are made for those more hollow, fast waves. And I borrowed a guy's board in the afternoon when it was high tide because everyone was now going to go out when it was sort of breaking on the inside. It was really hollow, really fast and uh, really powerful. And it was also going to my left, which means my back was facing the wave. So I couldn't see what was going to happen. And I took off on this wave. And what happens is if you are in powerful waves, which this was, you know, it was a solid head high. So you're talking six to eight, you know, six foot solidly, you know what I mean? And just thick lip, powerful. I felt when you fall that way, like on your backside like that, if you don't dive through the wave at all, the wave is going to do what happened to you. It will pick you up and make, it's called going over the falls. Yeah. It'll pick you up and you feel yourself come down with the lip and come slamming down. And down. The, yeah. Yep. And so I fell like that. And I felt, as soon as I sort of touched the wave, I went, Oh, I'm, I'm in, I'm in big trouble right now. And it took me and, and, you know, threw me over the falls and I don't remember if it was the first time I went over the falls because there are many times where he'll go over multiple times like the washing machine. But yeah. at one of those points, my head hit the bottom uh, and I, my teeth banged together. And I remember having the wherewithal to think to myself, yep, I might be knocked out right now. I'm going to try to move my body. <laughs> <laughs> and if I can't move my body, and I just know that this might be my last time, you know, and I um, thank God my body moved. But what happened was it then spun me another time and slammed me on my back and then just pinned me down. 
And I was at the bottom, sort of knowing I was looking up at the surface, but I couldn't get up. Yeah. That's how powerful the wave was. And so by the time I got up, I sort of gasped in water at the very last moment, you know, trying to suck in some air because I was so out of breath. And I came up and I, thank God I was, I was okay. I came to the beach and it is, if not only was I, when I was down on the bottom, it had like uh, the, the consistency of the sand there wasn't just sand. It was also little shells. And I was wearing a full body wetsuit that I felt like had now turned into sandpaper because all the shells were inside the wetsuit now. <laughs> it all was inside my suit. And I just said, that's it. I'm calling it today. I- I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. So, so yeah, that was a bad I wonder, so what is it about after you wipe out or after an injury while surfing, what is, why do you get back up and try again? What is it that compels you to keep going? So this, this last time from this past Friday, when I had the, when I did have an injury in my arm, um, I, I felt like there, one of the things that keeps you motivated is that you go, I just, I can't end it on that note. Mm. I can't, I can't end the session, you know, on such a down or, you know, downturn. I'm just going to go back out. This is what I did. I'm just going to go back out and just get one more wave. Even if it's not the greatest wave in the world, at least I'll have something that isn't like me feeling horrible about what happened to that kid's board and this and that, you know, just, I'll have a positive, more positive end to the session. That's number one. Um, I think when it comes to a really bad wipeout, you know what I mean? If you had something really intense, um, the, the, the ways, see that what's nice about surfing is when you get back up, you don't actually get back up always at that same exact moment. So when I come back to the ocean the next time, it's not the same as it was. The question is, I think, for me at least, what, how, do you go, how do you handle that situation when you're in a similar circumstance again? Like when I come back to the beach and the beach looks exactly like that and it's hollow and it's thick and I'm going to get pummeled it again, how do I handle it? Do I go back out and say, I can do this? Or do I say, I, I remember that last time I got pounded. I'm not going to go out. Yeah. What would you do in this? I mean, do you, do, you, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some, there's some sense that you're always sort of fighting your old self or your old experiences in your head. And um, like you said, like you either you muster up the courage to be like, nope, that's, that's not it. Or like, oh, I'm going to try things a little safer or differently. So, right. you know, I, and, and sometimes you just don't, you know, I've never ridden Adam's beast again. <laughs> I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't touch that thing anymore. Right? That's, that's, that's sort of the way that people get around these things. They say, I oh, must've been the board. It's probably the board. It wasn't, it wasn't me. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I didn't surf for months after that. And, uh, you know, I, I remember missing it. I remember the first time I got back in the water, I was pretty tentative. I think I rode, I didn't even pop on a few waves. I just rode them in cause I was terrified. Um, but so that's one of the, but that's one of the things what you went through is it's funny because you look at, if you, you ever look at a, a, a board, like in the right light on the, on the bottom part of it, and you, cause on the top part of it, you have all the wax. So there's always bumps from the wax and everything. But if you look on the other side and you see how there's all these indentations on the board, yeah. most of those come from our heads. I don't know <laughs> yeah. if people know that out there, the yeah, board, exactly. right? So if you're riding a long board, like, like Ralph, like you were riding and the board and you go forward like that and the nose goes in and then you, you have to wait to come up because the board sinks frontwards yeah. then jumps up in the air and then comes down. And one of our good friends, he's going to hate that I'm going to say this, but our, our good friend, Mike from college, I, I, I used to watch him and um, almost any given session we went out, he would get hit in the head by his board and I would be cracking up at him. And he, it would never, wasn't everything that was really bad. You know, it'd come down and kind of go conk and he would be like, oh man, like and, and he had so many dents in the bottom of his board from his head 
but that's where they come. You know, that's some of the places they come from. Yeah. Yeah. But it teaches you so much about, uh, you know, getting back up again and doing it. Cause I think everyone, or at least those of us who keep at it realize like the benefit of, you know, trying again and not being overcome by fear of, you know, bonking your head or getting held under, you know, it just takes a while to get over. And I, I'm just, I'm glad and thankful that I've never been overcome by fear to not get back in the water, you know, and sure. And, Cause I can't imagine just missing out on so many opportunities because of the wipeout. I, now, again, you got to recover sometimes. Like you, you take time, sure. that time I, that time at Sloat, I got out of the water right away and I just yep. sat shaking cold, catching my breath for about 30 minutes, staring at the water. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm done. I'm out and walked out. Yeah. No. Uh, so there was a time, there was a time very similarly, there was a time I remembered. It's so funny. Cause when we, when we, when I was first thinking about these, these wipeouts, as you started talking about, I didn't remember that many. I'm like, I've never had that many. And I was like, wait a minute. Now my list is like growing as we talk. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I had a, I had one where it was very similar to the one in North Carolina where it picked me up and threw me over the falls. But when I landed my, I, I somehow instinctually knew that my board was at the bottom of where I was coming down. I just knew. I don't know why I knew that. Like it, it didn't, it didn't have to be there, but I, I was like, you know what? Your board is going to be there. Somehow I got my, like body to turn and put my arm out in front of me and the fin was what my arm hit and the fin is the sharpest part slice it and i was wearing yeah but i was wearing nine millimeters of wetsuit between my glove and my and that's not a wetsuit that's chain mail (laughs) but it didn't it didn't save me i probably got a a nice cut into my wrist uh, and so like yeah into the side of my arm that still has wetsuit inside of it i can i can find it that has like a little bit of black wetsuit in it. And like, but I, that was it. I just was like, there is no way I'm going back out there right now. I just went right in and said, and oh, I forgot about that. It, it threw me a second time and the fin hit me in the back. It was a great wipeout. I mean, as far as wipeouts go, I wish I could get like a video of it. Yeah, But it was, that was it. I was done when, for the day. When we talk about failures and wipeouts, I, I'm always curious about um, childhood. Like, where does it come from? Because some chill, some th- some people have these like deep rooted childhood memories of a time they failed and were were told not to get back up or told not to try again, or they have these crazy stories of parents who pushed them and were like you know called them names because they, they you know they were weak and they were they couldn't get back up they couldn't get back into it. Do you have any memories from childhood about a time you failed and and how you reacted or how somebody else reacted? So I don't have a specific, off the top of my head, I don't have a specific memory, but I do know this. I was thinking when you were talking about failing and what get, how do you get back up and why do you get back up? I remembered that I spent the majority of my childhood as a skateboarder. Did yeah. you skateboard when you were younger? Yeah, a little bit, but not, not much. So skateboarding is like, I, I think by, by definition, skateboarding is, is the sport of failure. You will fail at skateboarding and everything that you try for such a long time. And when you fail at skateboarding, it isn't like, oh, I didn't, I just, I didn't land that trick. It's like you got slammed in your shins. You fell on your hip. You fell on your, you know, like, and literally I watch guys. I, I had a friend when I was in middle school, I watched him try to jump down 12 steps, including the sidewalk that was attached to it and jump into the street. And he fell so hard. And I watched him just go, I mean, it was like he went 12 steps and the sidewalk onto his hip, like almost right down and just went, got back up, walked back up the steps, did it again until he landed it. And there's something about that where you're, you don't even, in skateboarding, you don't even give yourself time to think about the failure. You know what I mean? 
and I and it's and I watched. It's funny because I I used to think I was like I never understood why people didn't want to watch me skateboarding. And then I watched skateboarders as I got older, like just you know running around at a park or something. And I was like, because ninety nine percent of skateboarding is failing. You don't land that trick. You don't land that trick. Only really really good skateboarders do like six tricks in a row, and yeah. like really look amazing. You know. And so if somebody who doesn't know skateboarding watches you, they go this is the most boring thing I've ever seen. You keep trying to stay and you fail every time over and over. But yeah, I don't, I think there was always pushback from my parents and everything. They didn't love the skateboarding. They didn't, they didn't, they always let me be who I needed to be and tried to force me to wear helmets. But, but what about you? When you, when you were younger, did you, uh, did you have any memories like that? I mean, yeah, I think I, um, I was always trying new things and, but not always sticking them out through, you know, seeing, seeing success. Um, I, I was like dabbling in everything. And I remember my father, a lot of times he was a great support and he, but he always, he always encouraged us to like keep trying and go at it again, but he didn't strive for, for perfection, which like to a kid, that's a great thing. But now it sort of holds me back to be like, you know, sometimes I'll do something and say, well, it wasn't the best, but it's good. It's done. Let's put it out there. And yeah you know, so I'll fail and I'll try something again, but I'm just as content being like, Oh, I'll never do that again. Or, or that was good enough. And I'm not too worried about it. So I think, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a matter of, you know, after our failures, it's, are you getting back up and trying again, um, to take pride in doing better and, and getting over your fears or are you just going through the motions and, and, uh, not, you know, not learning and growing from it, I guess. Sure. Sure. Did you, do you ever see, um, Oh wait, I'm totally going to blank on the name of the movie. It was an Albert Brooks movie in the eighties. Um, defending your life. Did you ever see defending your life? I don't think so. This is a fabulous movie. If I we should put it in the show notes, it's, it's a fabulous movie and it, and it actually is in some ways a very Jewish movie. Um, even though it's not specifically tied to any one religion, it's about he, he in the opening scenes of the movie. I don't want to you know, spoiler alert, but he dies in the opening season scenes of the movie, and he goes up to heaven, and he has to defend his life to see whether or not he gets to stay in heaven. Uh-huh. And he has a prosecutor um, in his sort of court case, and he has a defense attorney, and there's like some sort of judge figure, and they literally just pull up images of his life when he was younger and all they want to know, the only thing that keeps you staying in heaven is whether or not you overcame your fears. Mm. And this was like, for some reason, this movie, I watched it. It was on HBO probably like nonstop. And I loved to watch HBO when I was younger. I watched it a lot. And for some reason that became a definitive thing for me in watching it. I wanted to overcome fears, whatever they were. Whether it was, and I think one of my biggest, I don't know about you, but one of my biggest when I was younger was, was public speaking. And if you want to get better at public speaking, try doing it in a different language for a while and then go back to <laughs> English and, oh, it's like, you know, like, this is so much easier. Yeah. I should always just speak in English. You know what I mean? But like, it's, it's an amazing, it, like that, those sorts of facing your fears were for me something I never wanted to let me hold me back. And I don't know if I thought that it was going to get me into heaven or anything, but I just knew that like fear was not something which should motivate you in your life and it should not rule your life. Um, and that movie really deals with that in a very interesting way. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That it, it sort of connects to um, a lot of our stand up comedy days where, 
you know, so much of comedy is working it out live and trying something with complete terror and fear, like you said, where you're trying to overcome your fear. And, you know, the worst fear for a comedian is telling a joke and getting no laughs, no response, right? And so, and yet, I think there's something about it where going through it, you realize that your biggest fear was nothing more than, you know, the the scary lion was nothing more than a kitten. You're like, oh, for sure. So what? Nobody laughed. I can remember, right. I can remember thinking when we were first talking about doing stand-up, I was like, there's, this is the scariest thing I can imagine doing. And I absolutely want to do it. I have to do this one time in my life. I don't know if I actually said those words to you, but in my brain, I was like, I'm doing stand-up one time in my life at least. And I can remember coming out on stage vividly, coming out on stage. You, you and I did, you introduced me. And when you introduced me, um, I, I had jokes sort of to like lead into it, which was about why stand-up, com- like why do we have the microphone stand? Yeah. Because we should just do it like a relay race where you introduce me and then hand it off to me and I just keep my hand in the back and grab the microphone and yeah, keep, yeah. <laughs> keep passing. <laughs> and and that that joke landed. And when it landed, I went, oh, that was like my weakest joke. This is going to be great. <laughs> and <laughs> all, all the fears sort of, it was all downhill from here. And I was like, all the fears sort of dissipated. And I felt like, okay, great. I can do this. And then I, and then one of my favorite things about the, 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 the whole stand up bit that I built in that section was I had a whole thing about being Jewish at that time. Like at that time I wasn't wearing a kippah, right? I wasn't wearing my skull cap. I wasn't, you know, wearing any of the traditional garb in any way. I wasn't, you know, necessarily doing what I do now, pray three times a day, but I had this connection to Judaism and I built this whole bit about, you know, how my father said I should wear a, a star of David necklace and show everyone that I was Jewish because I surf and I snowboard and, you know, Jews are not really known for their physical prowess. And I said, maybe that's actually just the way it is. You know, maybe, you know, could you imagine like a Yiddish old man working at a construction site? And he's like, <laughs> you know, trying to pick up this bar and he's, oh, and my back. And he throws out his back. I go through this whole thing. Not, not really relevant what the, how the joke ends up, <laughs> but I did it. I did it because, and when I did it, I knew it was going to bomb. I had, I was like, I'm in Rhode Island. Okay. This, what is it? 90% Roman Catholic in Rhode Island. What's the, what's the numbers? Yeah, And the Jews are still hiding. Yeah. <laughs> and the, Jews are, and the Jews are like, not, I'm not here. So they're in the back hiding too. I threw the joke out and I was so like, I was proud of it. I was like, I know it's going to bomb and I'm going to do it anyway. And, yeah. and I wasn't scared at that moment. It was like sort of a pride issue for me. Have you, did you have moments where you bombed on stage? Oh, constantly. I, when I was living in Providence in about in the 2000, um, I had this bravado uh, that I would just show up at open mics or um, comedy clubs that had people booked, but they would um, at the end of the night after the last, after the headliner was on, they just, you know, let people go on who they knew. So I would just show up with five or six friends. And if you brought enough people to these clubs, they would let you have five. So whether I had material or not, I was like, I'll go up and do something. And it almost became a joke to me that I was bombing. Like it became something fun. Like I'm going to go up there and just say what I'm thinking. And uh, at the time it was, I remember it was pre-election, Al Gore, George Bush. 
And so I had, there's nothing funny about that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I had some, some political commentary and I went to this club just down the road from my apartment and uh, a bunch of my friends came uh, and I started doing some political jokes and there was a guy in the front row and he, whatever joke I made, he got offended by. And so he started heckling me. And to that point, I had never had a legitimate unknown heckler. Like at, at, at college, we had a few people who, you know, they were friends of ours and they'd, they'd, they'd heckle just, just to kind of get a rise. And then they you mean You mean like almost the entire audience that was just friends of ours who came yeah. to our shows? <laughs> it was so easy to get a laugh. Yeah, I know. Hey, what you're hey, 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 we were big. So, <laughs> so the, but this guy, he was mean. He was rude. He was obnoxious and relentless. He wouldn't let up. Oof. And I, that was my biggest, uh, that was my biggest bombing because, I, you know, I, I avoid conflict in general. Um, and if I do address it, I try and do it respectfully. So I was trying to like empathize with this guy's like, Hey man, I'm just trying to do some jokes here rather than like getting into it and getting into it. Right, right, right. Like playing coy. Cause you and know, the rule, right? The rule is if you don't own the heckler, get off the stage. Yeah. You and have to own the heckler. So I was terrified. And he just kept going. He wouldn't let up. And so he would say something awful about me and make fun of me. And while I was trying to figure out how to make a comeback or get over my fear, he would have a second thing to say. Oh. And so uh, what I wound up doing was, in retrospect, it was kind of a cowardly move, but also a genius move. Oh. Where because most of my comedy is sort of um, silly and in the, in the realm of ridiculousness. Um, so he was smoking a cigarette, I remember. And uh, he took a drag of his cigarette and he put it down in the ashtray still lit. And I said to him, why don't you just sit there and uh, sit there, shut up and smoke your cigarettes. And I walked over to the table and I snatched the cigarette off the table and I put it in my mouth. Oof. And on, so the, and then I, I had the this mic. This is in not a hand. COVID story, ladies and gentlemen. This is pre-COVID. I, started, I <laughs> ate this guy's lit cigarette. I chewed it up and, and the crowd went nuts. There were, the reaction was between sheer uncontrolled laughter to shock ah. and terror to, you know, I think the bartender stood up and, and had her mouth open wide thinking what is going to happen here. Luckily, I didn't get horribly burned. Uh, that's that's the first thing <laughs> but man that was and everyone's laughing and he didn't say another word after that wow and so it was this moment when it was you know i i sort of realized that you know there's a way out of this and afterwards we joked about it we laughed about it and i threw up because to cigarettes taste terrible but um <laughs> Of course. But that was a bigger fear than jokes bombing for me. And even now, I still, you know, in preaching and public speaking, um, you know, when the content doesn't hit hard, it's not the end of the world. And I think a lot of comedians learn more from bombing if they, you know, if they lean into it and they ask questions and they're inquisitive about what went wrong and where did I fail? And even asking, you know, on a deeper level, okay, this wasn't all someone else. This wasn't all the audience's fault. Like what fault, what percentage am I at fault and how do I work on myself? And, and then, you know, try again and succeed. Cause I think in a lot of ways, you know, failures in jobs, uh, people blame the, 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 the employer, uh, failures in relationships, people vilify their, uh, their partner and say, Oh, it was all their fault. She went crazy or he got right. abusive. It's like, well, you know, the relationship was broken long before. Yes, yeah, someone did something to end it, but 
you know, how much are we at fault? And I think that's, that's the part where we've got to be more vulnerable to like, listen and learn from our failures, what they're, you know, what, what is the universe? What does God want to teach us from this so that we grow and expand and try again and succeed rather than crawling in a hole and never doing it again or being bitter and miserable about something that something that went horribly wrong. Absolutely. I think, I think what's interesting that you sort of also picked up on there a little bit was, and, and this is the sort of, and this might be true when you're doing a sermon as well. You're talking about how the, the, the material might not land as the way that you want to, or as impactfully as you want to. But when it comes to stand up, and, and I'm saying it might also be true for, for when you're doing a sermon is how much is it your content? How much is it your preparation and how much is it just your delivery, right? Because comedy, I think right. for sure, is so much on delivery, right? You can have a joke that works and they, and they talk about this when they talk about how the, the, the uh, rehearsal run and then the actual run goes for Saturday Night Live, right? Because they do a rehearsal run earlier in the day, right? And people can come in. I think they have one audience for the rehearsal, right? And then they have a second audience for the actual show. Yeah. And they say that 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 sketch nailed in rehearsal and it bombed on the actual show. And, and so that there's, there's so many dynamics that go on in there. It's the people who are in the audience, the material that, right. Cause I think there are people the same way that you say that people are, and I think this is true. There are people who are teachers, right. And you say, you're just a naturally born teacher. You're a naturally born leader. There are people who I think are naturally funny. And if you, and no matter how much preparation you do, if you are not funny and you can't deliver the line, you got nothing. You're not, you're not going to be able to prepare yourself into, you know, willing your way necessarily into getting the crowd to laugh. But, but so that there's a lot of dynamics going on there. And I think, but the only way to ever really find out, like you said, is sort of what we did is to jump in there and say, I'm going to give it a try. And then, and then to go even further to say, I'm going to, I'm going to sit here while this isn't going well, and I'm not going to walk away from it. I'm not going to, right. not leaning even the next, not even, not yet leaning into it saying, I'm not even, I'm not even talking about if I'm going to get up here on the stage ever again, I'm going to sit here right now and let this happen. You know what I mean? And say, this is the, this is the, like, and it's like, we talked about once before about surfing, right? When it, when I'm out there and I'm in a bad situation, no matter what it is. And by the way, what was interesting about the other day was, that was the, one of the, the, the worst injuries I feel like I've ever gotten surfing, but it wasn't because of surfing. It was, I was helping somebody else out and just got into a situation where I needed to put myself in a situation where I'd never put myself normally. Right. Yeah, yeah. But th- that, that ability to sort of let yourself um, sort of learn and say, I'm not going to, I can't just jump out of the ocean when things aren't going the way I want them to. Right. right when it's really right. big, I can't just say, that's it. I'm calling it. There's rocks here. There's this, that. I can't just call it, right? I have to sort of deal with the, the, the cards that I'm dealt at that moment. And to sit there and say, okay, not only am I going to do this right now, but I'm also going to learn from it is a very powerful thing. Yeah, you got to, and, and feeling all of it, like allowing yourself to be okay with being terrified or okay with being, you know, ashamed or, um, or worried. You know, I think we, 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 in our failures, we run away from our emotions when they're really trying to teach us something yep. um, on a deeper level. And I, I remember listening to um, Mike Berbiglia talk with Pete Holmes on uh, Pete's podcast, You Made It Weird, about bombing. And 
Mike Birbiglia was saying, oh, I love bombing. He says, I like standing outside of my body while I'm bombing and just watch myself <laughs> bombing and laugh at myself, like pretend I'm a character in a movie while I'm living it. Oh, and he nice. says, and it's so funny to watch this guy bomb. And it was all about uh, Pete Holmes did a, um, an HBO series. And uh, in a couple of them, Pete, Pete, you know, his, all his jokes fall pretty, pretty shallow and nobody laughs. And it's Pete's sort of uh, learning that it's all a part of the process and not, yep. not to, uh, and, and, and they both kind of came to the decision that, uh, you know, if they can not get too emotionally overcome when they're bombing and they can just observe what's happening, they enjoy it more. You know, they like it more. They don't go into the comedy trying to, trying to bomb. Um, which is an even funnier, <laughs> yeah. a funnier story. Like guys like um, Andy Kaufman and Jim Carrey, yeah. who like yeah. went out there on a set and said, "I'm going to bomb. I'm going to read the encyclopedia. I'm yeah. going to I'm going to yell at people for 20 minutes and see what happens." For sure. But um, no. But what's yeah. interesting is when you talk about Pete and you talk about Mike, because I actually it was funny because just today I was listening to the podcast that Pete Holmes was on Mike Berbiglia's podcast. So it was the opposite podcast. And so in that podcast, they were going through his, uh, Mike Birbiglia's podcast is called Working It Out. And if you haven't listened to it, definitely go check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. But the, um, but he, in, in that podcast, in work, it's called Working It Out because they sit there and they go over bits that they're working on and they give each other advice and they, you know, give each other punchlines. And it was probably the most true to the name of the podcast, that episode. And I was listening to them and I thought to myself, they're doing a podcast. So they, like we, you know, like I think every podcast host tries to do, you lift up the, 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 the guest, you lift up the other person. You never want to like knock something down. But I was thinking about it when you're doing comedy or sermons or anything, you want somebody who's going to shoot you straight. You don't want somebody who's going to blow the smoke. You know what I mean? You right, want somebody right. who's really going to say to you, that's not funny. Yeah, yeah. If you don't want to bomb, I mean, unless you want to bomb on stage, but you need somebody who's really going to give you that honest feedback. And I think in any walk of life, that's something that I think people um, don't take enough stock in. Don't look at the person who's actually giving them what we call in Hebrew, tochacha. Tochacha means you're being rebuked. And if you want to be in a land of rebuke, come to Israel anytime because everyone <laughs> everyone thinks that they know better than you and everybody everybody's got something to tell you about hey you know like i was walking with a friend of mine once and uh he he and i were walking and his his son was probably two maybe two years old less probably one and he had him like strapped to him and he had no socks on and it was right at that point where it was fall and it was starting to get cold and a woman walked up to him on the street here in jerusalem and said your son needs socks on and then walked away. <laughs> like, that's how it is to live in Israel. But, but, but that, that ability to give people honest feedback, as much as it stings when you get it, it's probably the best thing you could possibly ever get. It's going to help you. It's going to help you not fail. But don't you think it's all a matter of how, uh, how much you're willing to accept that and how, and how close the person is who, who delivers that rebuke? It, it does depend, I think. I think sometimes rebuke um, from, I could go both ways. I could say when you get it from someone who's close to you, it can hurt more, right? 
Um, and so you might be less willing to sort of accept the rebuke, but when you get it from somebody who you don't know, you could also, you could go both ways. You could turn to that person and say, I don't know that person. What do they know? But they could also, you know, stick in your head and just nag at you for a while. Yeah. And you're like, I don't, I don't know that person. And they said something to me, they must really know what's wrong here or what I should be doing, you know? And, yeah. but, but the, the, the real goal, like you were talking about, the real goal, I think, is to be a person who walks through life and really listens to constructive criticism, even when it's not presented in the best way. You know, we all, we all wish it could be presented in a way that's, you know, digestible for us, but that's not always the way that, you know, your fellow person nor God wants you to get that, that message. Yeah. Always. yeah. I call it a non-biased presence when you're able to just uh, listen to something without reacting, take it in and then, you know, filter it through a series of your own kind of checks and balances to decide, okay, how much of this do I really need to hear and change? Like I always tell people, I'll hear anything from any someone who loves me and loves God. And, you know, some days I'm not at an emotional or physical point to really listen. But yeah. um, like Kendra, for instance, I know she meets both those criteria. So when she tells me something, sometimes I'm reactive and I get mad because I'm not in a good place. But I always know what she's trying to say is in love and trying to help me grow and be better. And uh, mm -hmm. I think that makes the world of difference. We, have, we, we often, I, you know, on sermons, um, people often give their um, unrequested feedback on how the sermon went. And, um, you know, I always say to people, I always thank people. And then I put it through my filters and I put it through those two filters. The other filter is, you know, how involved and present are they the rest of the time? Is this the first time I've heard from this person ever? Or is it someone who I'm close to? One time sure. I got an email from a lady. Um, she said, I came for the first time yesterday and I really didn't like your sermon, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I responded, I was not having a good day. I responded, well, it sounds like you're, uh, you're going to be better off finding a church that suits you well. Ooh, yes. And it, wasn't, it was sort of like, a, you know, <laughs> you don't have the right to criticize. Right. You know, you are not, you're not a member here. You're not a regular. You're, um, you know, and it was very... It was non-constructive criticism as well. Well, that's what I was going to say. She doesn't sound like she said anything that was, you know, other than I just want to get this off my chest. And it's like, that's not what construct, that's what, that's not what we're looking for here, right? We're not looking for somebody who just feels like, I just wanted to write, like my mother does. I wanted to write you a letter and tell you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you messed up my order. Okay, fine. But what's, what's that going to do down the line? You know How's I mean? that helping? Yeah. Right. There was a there was a point when I lost my I was working at a, a school near, you know here in Jerusalem for I think I worked there for seven years and they and when they let me go I was it was hard it was hard to be let go as it is to be let go from any job right and um, what was harder than that was I what there was no actual official thank you at the end of the time of working there no sort of closure and uh, my wife Leia says to me when when I finished she goes you should totally go to your boss and give him a really hard time for not thanking you. And he has, I should say, he had a whole policy of like taking a, a, one of the teachers during the year. And that teacher was like featured at one point during the year. And everybody wrote thank you letters to the teacher. And it was all thing. And he was like trying to inculcate in the staff thanking people. And so to not be thanked at the end of the job was like, it wasn't, it was hard. Yes. So, but what happened was I, I said to her, what, what, what's the point of me coming back to him and, you know, wagging my finger at him if we're never going to work together again? Right. That just means one day he's going to look back and say, hey, he yelled at me. And, and somebody who, you know, comes to, to ask about me or something for a job, 
he's not going to think positively of me. And she, she came up with the best thing. She goes, no, you shouldn't wag your finger at him. You should write a letter to the whole <laughs> staff thanking everyone on like the, on the, on the staff email for letting you be part of the, of the organization. And like, so that then they will thank you. Oh, that's <laughs> and, funny. And, that's, and I, and I, I said, that's good. I'm going to do that. that and I did. Pretty good. That is pretty good. That sense of like gratitude, even though you got fired and you know, that, and it is, it's like when you fail in that way, you want to react with spite and bitterness and like tear the whole, you know, sink the whole ship sure. with you. Sure. That's like a natural inclination with failure. You're like, if I'm going down, everybody's going down when really it's like, one okay. of my, one of my best teachers was I did radio when I was in towards the end of my time in college and a little bit after college. And one of my teachers are for those who are in Rhode Island and know I worked with Marianne Sorrentino, who was a fantastic, wonderful, just unbelievably complex character um, who always pushed me and said, you're never going to do radio. You're going to be a rabbi. And thankfully I listen. Um, she thinks so at least she always tells me, um, but she, she would give serious. Um, she would, she would really lay into you, to you if you did something wrong. There was no doubt about it. She was, and, but she was an unbelievable, like that sort of feedback from her would always sort of make me, want to do better, even though the way she gave it was sometimes so hard. I, I didn't, I, I, did you, when you were in college, did you know how to use a photocopy machine? <laughs> this is like a big, a big admittance, meaning, let me put it out. Let me be a little bit more succinct. Did you know how to photocopy things and reduce and enlarge and do all the things that a photocopy machine could do? I, I obviously had to. Uh, see, I was not at that point. I think I used to just do whatever it went. So I, I handed her something to work on like she would read off of the page while she was on the radio and I didn't know how to reduce. And I didn't, and it was at that point in my life where I was still not confident enough to ask for the help. Right. And so a lot of the page was cut off because it was not, I needed to reduce it. And she laid into me so hard. I can remember the whole thing to this very day. I can remember how she laid into me and I felt so much like, Oh, you know, how could she talk to me like that? But I learned if you need help with something or it's not working, just ask for help. You know what I mean? Like it was one of those great moments where I went, she was right. I was wrong. And I needed to sort of suck it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool that you learned a bit from your failures and were able to move, you know, later at least move beyond that kind of criticism. Um, it it kind of reminds me that about uh, how, you know, there's this, there's this idea that the Bible teaches um, a way to live. Like it's a guidebook of how to succeed in life. Um, mm -hmm. There's even like a whole sect of Christianity um, where they, they promote that, you know, if you live the way the Bible tells you, you're going to be wealthy and thrive. And really, if you're actually reading the stories in the Bible for what they're worth, most of them are people failing, screwing yes. up, people who were, you know, down and out, who wound up being the heroes in some way. And it's amazing that we miss that part. Uh, we miss that camaraderie with, you know, that, yeah, uh, people like David went on to be a hero, but he right. screwed up big time you oh, know, yes. somewhere along the way. And God gave him a second chance. God blessed him and, and helped him become king. Yes. But it, he wasn't able to become king until he was humbled to his core, recognized mm -hmm. his failure, and that it was even a greater, it wasn't just a blessing he got to try again, but that God didn't change God's view of David because he messed up. You know, and the I think Bible's full of that. Do you notice that along the way? Oh, of course. I just want to say, what's interesting about the story of David, though, is it, it, the way... I mean, one of the most amazing things about that story is that he is considered in the Jewish tradition as the king of kings. Yeah. His descendants, right, will be 
who come in our eyes, who will be when the when the what we call the Mashiach, which means the um, the Savior one day will come, right? When the redemption will happen, it'll be from his line, right? It'll come from David's line. But David, because of his sins and and his his shortcomings, he was not able to build the temple, which in our view was like a huge thing that he said, sorry, God said, it's going to go to the next generation. It's going to be Saul. It's going to be Shlomo, your son. He'll, He'll... Solomon is going to build the temple. You're not going to build the temple. And it killed David. It was so hard. Um, And and what happens in Judaism, which is, I I find very hard to stomach a lot of the time, is that the the traditionalists, I don't know if that's even a good word for them, but there are people who will will want to put the the forefathers and foremothers on this pedestal. And and, and it comes actually from the, the commentators that we actually have on the Bible itself. They tend to try and um, elevate them because they they are the forefathers and the foremothers. We think of them as so great because look who they are. They were the ones that God chose to sort of start the whole story in Genesis. But if you actually look at the story on its on its level and read it from the literal sense, from actually just what's written in the Torah, just what's written in the in the Bible, there this is I call it just the 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 blueprint for how not to raise a family. That's what that is. Like that's the way. Um, that it's just a story of people raising other people to in a way that I would say you should probably never do. I mean, just a classic example of right when when Joseph was picked out and given something special amongst all his brothers. I mean, that's what they say led us to be in Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. It led to us all having to be enslaved for four hundred years. Mm-hmm. Was just the fact that the that Jacob gave him a little bit of extra. Uh, monthly, what do we call that? When you get something from your, your parents, give your allowance, right? He gave him just a little more allowance. And that led to all the brothers being jealous and all of the fighting and then selling him into slavery and him going down to Egypt. And then we all ended up in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, so the, the commentators picked up on it, but they tend not to focus on it as much. Whereas I tend to say, look at the failures. These people aren't perfect. And that's exactly the point. We're not supposed to be perfect. We don't emulate perfection. We emulate people who are human. Yeah. Yeah. And people, people don't want to take those stories as opportunities to explore like what they're doing wrong, but they want to, they want to like see other people who screwed up, but focus on their, uh, focus on their successes and accolades. How do you read it? How do you under, how do you, uh, how do you understand that you know, the Bible, you know, how do you take it that the Bible is filled with all these stories of people who uh, screwed up, messed up, you know, and somehow became heroes? I think I, 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 think I read the Bible in one way, and, the, and that is the way that God is showing us how to be as much like God as possible, right? And so even though the story that you're looking at isn't a story of somebody who like, how much can you learn from somebody who does absolutely no wrong? That's how I look at it, right? If you looked at a story and you read, read book after book about somebody who was just flawless and perfect and never did anything wrong, mm. how does that help me necessarily as a human being when I know I'm going to fail? Because mm. that's just who I am. I'm, I mean, humans can't be perfect. The only thing in our, in our tradition that can be perfect is God. So, what what I learn more from, I think, is seeing somebody else who lives their life as best as they can, does stumble, misstep, but still keeps going and still is somebody that God um, 
you know, venerated and, and lifted up and was, you know, connected to, uh, even though they were human and failed and, you know, and could have been better. How about yeah. you? I mean, like, what do you, how do you, how does, how does your tradition look at these sorts of things? Do they, do they tend to focus more on the, the positive things? Do they tend to focus more on the negative things? What do people do? Yeah, I think it's, there's definitely a balance of, but, you know, we rely on what we call grace, God's unconditional free gift of love and uh, eternal life. And we understand that to be even, you know, not despite our failures or after we've succeeded and gotten rid of all our faults or paid for uh, what we've done wrong. It's in the middle of all that. Um, we believe God gave us Jesus as a free gift to overcome all that. So we're made righteous with God. We're justified. And that free gift amidst our failure in the middle of, you know, right when I'm doing something wrong, knowing God still loves me, um, how we see that is it's a catalyst or it's a motivator to help us to live better, to live differently. Um, Paul says something in Ephesians about, um, how it's only God's work through him that he's able to do all these good things, that it's not his work or his success or his, you know, mental strength, but it's God working through him. And, you know, so as we see, uh, you know, that unconditional love amidst our failures, it's this overwhelming motivation to, to try harder and um, do better and live more the way that God wants us to live. Um, and so all these characters just become great, examples of um people like us who are doing doing stuff that wasn't you know wasn't right and you know god came into their life like if god can use uh people like paul who was a previous you know persecutor of christians people like moses who was stuttering and shy uh mm-hmm. people like like jonah who was specifically told to do something and went the opposite way uh you know, these people becoming heroes tells us, you know, we can mess up and God still loves us, um, helps us to, to try harder to be better amidst our failure. So failures are just a part of the, the, the life that we have. And, and when we're avoiding them, we're missing out both on growing and changing, but also on God shaping us in a way that's ultimately a better path than we, we could do on our own if we're ignoring those failures. That's awesome. I think, you know, it reminded me of a, a story uh, that we have in some of the later works in the, in the Talmud, where um, I believe one of the major rabbis, and I, I would never, this is one of my failings is I never remember names. So one of the rabbis in, 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 in the Talmud says, asked the question is, who is actually the better um, person? Somebody who has, has started his life out as always being someone who is religious, you know, observant, always observing all the laws. Mm-hmm. and never fails or somebody who actually started out as someone who never did any of the things and never was part of the religious set, you know world and then became religious and overcame all that and still became um uh, somebody who was religious and i believe the answer is the 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 latter is the one who we who is who is on a higher level because even though they both end up in the same place the other person had to pull themselves up from much lower mm, interesting yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah. I like that. Well, cool, man. Good talking to you. It seems like a good place to close up for today, but, um, thanks so much for chatting and thanks everybody for, 
listening to us talk about our failures. Uh, hopefully you heard some stuff that, that you found uh, useful and comical. And uh, thanks for listening and subscribe if you're someone who does that sort of thing. And we'll see you next week. All the best, guys.